0: Love, talk, radio. Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms, conscious commentary on business and society. I'm Matt Renner, the executive director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brudico, the, uh, the Academy's president and founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. This podcast is designed to give the Academy's outlook on the economic, political, and ecological factors that affect our listeners. Today we're going to talk about the U.S. economy, including the most recent jobs and GDP reports, and the international political situation, and how it could affect the U.S. Then we'll discuss the innovative policy that is currently in six U.S. states and is helping individual communities chart their own course on energy production, and greenhouse gas emissions uh, but first Ronaldo, I'd like to start with the crisis at Fukushima and the massive shift in consciousness that's happening around climate change
1: great um, and you know what Matt just before we do that, I know we didn't talk about this, but I just got to throw two things out quickly about <clears throat> two huge stories that are happening globally one sure. of course is this uh, this outrageous capture of three hundred girls and sold and, to be sold into slavery uh, and I just want to Point out that in all the stories I've heard about this now, and I think this is an incredible tragedy of massive proportions. As you know, I'm chairman of the board of Unstoppable, and we spend enormous amounts of money trying to educate uh, children, particularly girls, in Africa. So to me, this is a and girls of this age group. So to me, this is really tragic. But I want to point out that no one jets talking in the media about the fact that Nigeria is one of the most corrupt governments in Africa. It's the largest African state. It's been corrupted by Shell Oil. Shell knows what they're doing. They're supporting a corrupt administration that's been ripping the people off. The Christians in the south have been taking all the money, and they've been causing this festering uh, Muslim revolt in the north. So once again, business is at the heart of this crisis, meaning if Shell were to apply its economic pressure to the government, which it's afraid to do because it's afraid it'll throw them out, and some other oil company will come running in there. But somebody's got to help channel that oil wealth to the people of Nigeria – and not to the government of Nigeria, which is stealing it like a bunch of of bandits. Uh, Even the people that are living in the delta in Nigeria, where the the oil comes from, are being totally screwed by how the oil is being pulled out and their lives are being destroyed. So I just think people need to look at this and say, you know what? These girls being captured, yes, uh, uh, Boko Haram is a terrible group. No question they are. But let's start dealing with the underlying causes of these of these, these in, insane Sharia law-driven um, terrorist groups because they fester because of what we are doing. We Western companies are doing this, and we need to stop doing it and start funneling money to the people so that there won't be this seedbed for constant social upheaval and terrorism. I just want to make that point. second point yeah. I want to make about a national story, a global story, is the rise of polio. It was virtually on the edge of extinction and now, for the second time in its history, the World Health Organization has declared a Nash global emergency. So after 25 years of it going down, 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 and almost completely out of existence, it's now rapidly, rapidly, rapidly growing. And where it grows, as you would expect, is in the poorest areas of the planet. Right. Will those people eventually get on airplanes and come to America? You bet. We'll start to see polio cases here. It's not about them and us. It's about us. And once again, if we would create economic conditions globally, which would give rise to people's being able to make a decent living and plan for their future, have families, get to a middle class. If we did that, then this scourge also. But that and Boko Haram are tied to a third thing, and that's climate change. Climate change has already given rise to a a vast new breakout of malaria, because the mosquitoes can now live at higher elevations where populations are completely unprotected because they've never had to deal with um, the, the bug that malaria, uh, which is carried by the mosquitoes. you got polio. Is it going to be a direct result of, of climate change crisis? So as the climate change gets worse, and, and I'm going to segue now into the U.S. subject, As um, uh, climate change gets worse, everybody's going to feel it. In fact, there are 335,000 permanent environmental refugees from the city of New Orleans alone. Over 20 million people had to flee the Swat Valley in Pakistan. they have been coming back again, but they lived in the valley, which only had a river for tens of thousands of years, and then one day they had 10 feet of water all over the place. So um, what we need to be is aware of the crisis. And, And I was delighted that, sad but delighted, we've been talking about climate change, Matt, on this show since we started three and a half years ago. In fact, we started talking about it about eight years ago when our book came out. And... I'm I'm just pleased that finally the U.S. National Climate Assessment has been released. 300 U.S. scientists, 60 U.S. uh, administrators on the committee that reviewed the science. And and the opening line of the overview says, climate change, once considered an issue for a distant future, has moved firmly into the present. And and it goes on to say, which I think, corn producers in Iowa, oyster growers in Washington State, maple syrup producers in Vermont – Coastal planeters in Florida, water managers in the arid southwest, city dwellers from Phoenix to New York, and native peoples on tribal lands from Louisiana to Alaska, all of those have already been affected, and I didn't even cover the tornado alley. I didn't cover a six-square-mile fire, seven-square-mile fire out in Oklahoma, which shouldn't be there. I didn't cover a bridge that burnt down in California because one guy ignited a single piece of wood, and the flames and the heat, the, the wind and the heat was so great, it destroyed a $57 million wooden structure that was being used to create a new bridge and close the main artery between L.A. and Las Vegas for more than 24 hours. My point in all of this is, in sending out this assessment, the U.S. government has finally and the scientific community has finally said, okay, it's true, it's real, it's here, Oh, and the adverse effects are happening right this minute. In fact, this report calculates, I think accurately so, that last year we spent $100 billion directly as a result of climate change. $100 billion. and I think that's an underestimate, by the way. That was just easy numbers they picked to get that, like the $65 billion from Sandy was a big chunk of it. Now where do we go with this information? Do we go put our head in the sand like an ostrich going, woe is me, woe is me? No. In fact, the Academy through its geoengineering project has designed, has come up with three separate ways to deal with climate change and to reverse it. But first, we have to stop it. First, we have to stop adding CO2 to the air. How do we do that? Well, the Academy, and I don't I don't think it's going to be later in this show, but I think, Matt, we probably ought to schedule a show soon where we talk again about the California Moonshot Project, yep. which is the Academy's project to re- eliminate all fossil fuels and all nuclear within 10 years or less in the state of california 38 million people at no additional cost to the public now that's an astounding statement but it's true that's how far the technology has already come now the fossil fuel people they'll tell you oh no there's no climate change no nothing to worry about and they'll say hey you can't do it if technology's not ready all are lies Just like the cigarette companies lied from 1960 to 2000 about how cigarettes kill people, the fossil fuel companies, in order to enrich their profits, like the cigarette companies, are making the same lies now. So what I want people to realize is, if you want to save human society as you know it, you must act now. Acting in 35 years is too late. Humanity as you know it will not exist in just 35 years. So please... Act now. What can you do? Speak to any level of government you can find. Your assemblyman, your state senator, your congresswoman, your congressman, your uh, state senator, your your, uh, all political officials at every level of society, including in California the Public Utilities Commission, the independent system operator that runs the grid. Start sounding out. We need to say it's time to stop CO2 emission, and it's time to immediately begin to remediate by taking the CO2 back out of the air and cooling the planet back to where it needs to be so that the methane releases which are starting to occur won't become a far worse problem than CO2 ever was. Now, to yeah. me, when I say this is the end of human civilization as you know it, and you, people know who know me, I've been talking about climate change as the number one challenge facing human civilization. I have to say, unfortunately, I changed my mind. It's now the number two challenge so everything i just told you including the end of human civilization as you know it within 35 years is the number two challenge facing human civilization what's number one i had to think about this because bill nye the science guy was quoted yesterday on television saying number one was climate change as i have been saying for many many well for years it turns out when i thought about that could i still say that and the answer is no because now there's a bigger, more immediate threat to the entire planet, and it's called Fukushima. you, know, you want me to go into that? or?
0: Yeah, I think that's important because the, the concept that there's something more dangerous and more pressing than climate change is a new one uh, in our conversations and in, the, you know, in, in what we've been talking about on the show before. So I really want to drive this point home that you're saying that this is more dangerous right now uh, than climate change.
1: Yeah, I'm saying that there's a certainty given that the Japanese government is continuing to cover up, continuing to let the situation be run by the same people who were dumb enough to create it in the first place and who have and by the way, by their own admission, have no plan, have no plan to solve the damaged reactors. They believe they can take the spent fuel out of one of the reactors, the undamaged one. The other 3 they can't and they have no plan for addressing it. If there is wow. another earthquake in Japan near that reactor, which there will be, is it going to be one year, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? It's going to be in that. It's somewhere in there. The spent and active fuel rods, which are going off every day, putting 100,000 tons of radioactive water in the ocean every day, those spent fuel rods and active fuel rods, if they are exposed to air, now remember they're sitting in these damaged reactor cores, they're so damaged that they can't extract the fuel pellets, they can't extract the fuel rods. The head engineer for Tokyo uh, Electric, who's in charge of it, said removing these fuel pellets from the damaged reactors would be like removing a crushed cigarette from a crushed cigarette package when the package and the cigarette are on fire. That's their quote. That's the chief engineer in charge and they have no plan for what to do with it, and they don't know when they'll ever come up with a plan. Now, mm. if air is to, if those, if any of those fuel rods or spent fuel rods were to be exposed to air, they would likely, what's called flash, meaning they would spontaneously combust and explode. Given the amount of fuel on the facility grounds at Fukushima, unprotected, that flash would create something that would be the equivalent of about 10,000 Hiroshima-sized bombs going off instantly. Wow. Obviously, that much radioactive material in the upper atmosphere would create a radioactive cloud very much like nuclear winter. In fact, that's what we used to call it, nuclear winter, all around the globe. Does that mean every human being in the globe will die? No. Some will survive. Uh, one of the fellows of the Academy, Akio Matsumura, was a survivor at Hiroshima. To this day, he is stunned how few people survived. He was one of them. We don't even know why Akio survived, but he did. As you know, Matt, Akio's in a panic over Fukushima, as he should be, because he understands the enormity. He was the guy who walked away when millions didn't or hundreds of thousands didn't from one bomb in Hiroshima. Can you imagine 10,000 Hiroshima's on the same minute? No. Well, that's going to throw a radioactive cloud into the atmosphere that will touch every aspect of the planet, period almost all of us do not have the ability to deal with that much radiation, and it will kill us. Others of us who have some genetic ability to deal with it may only be maimed and and have have subsequent children suffer from birth defects. Others, like Akio, will survive. But if you look at how few walked out of Hiroshima, like Akio, and how many died that day and in the 10 years that followed, you know we're talking about a threat to 7.3 billion people which easily, 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 easily will kill billions and billions of people.
0: So, And I can't do anything
1: about it to protect myself.
0: I can't let's, protect let's myself talk, from my family. Let's talk about Fukushima for a minute. So we know that there is an uh, ongoing effort to try and figure out what to do with the, the, the deeply damaged reactors. Um, but... From all our reports and the reports in the media, it sounds like TEPCO, the utility that owns the, the plant, is out of its league and essentially has, is fumbling around and making huge mistakes and dumping radioactive to- water into the ocean. Uh, what do you think is needed right now? What, what could help at the situation? It's very presented? simple.
1: It's very simple. It's very simple. The rest of the governments of the world have to say, wait a minute, this was your problem, but you didn't fix it in three plus years. This is now like a time bomb ticking for the entire planet. It's no longer Japan's problem. It's our problem globally. The United Nations, NATO, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, CETO, all of us, all of these organizations, every major government in the world who has any capacity at all in nuclear has got to immediately convene an international conference how to deal with the imminent crisis of Fukushima. And the Japanese government has to swallow its pride and let the best experts in the world in the room. I've got some ideas myself. In fact, I'll tell you on this program, what, what I, I would like to run by the best experts in the world the following scenario. I want to tunnel underneath Fukushima, and I want to do it with large boring machines. We have them. And, and I want to pick and build a concrete envelope, probably six to eight feet thick, and I want to take and run that concrete up the sides of the entire reactor facility, and then I want to put it up at the, and I want those walls to go up at least 50 to 100 feet higher than the highest standing point in Fukushima today. And then, and I want to make that earthquake safe, so that means you have to put that concrete mass on, on bearings so it can move a little bit, which is what we do with tall buildings all over the Western world. And I want to fill that entire concrete pool, if you will, with water so that we can submerge all of the Fukushima fuel pellets in place, get them underwater now, and stop leaking water into the Pacific Ocean immediately. Hmm. So you're building a giant swimming pool, okay? Yeah. A huge swimming pool. Now, why we know that's probably going to work, even though the Japanese have been unwilling to go to that length, is because if you look at the 30th anniversary of Chernobyl, they, did, they, they encased the entire reactor in a temporary building, which has lasted 29 years. And in order to prepare it for the next 50 years, they're doing exactly what I just said you should do in Fukushima, except they're building it on, rail, uh, on a rail uh, line. And they're building it next to the old plant. And they're going to roll this new entombment over the old entombment and seal it. Right. Because there's no water in Chernobyl. There's just radiation. By the way, the current estimate of the scientific community in Russia and the world scientific community is that Chernobyl will be safe again in 20,000 years.
0: That's amazing. I want to say
1: that again. Chernobyl will be safe again in 20,000 years. So what they're doing is they're building a new entombment device, which they think will take you hundreds of years out there, and they're hoping a couple hundred years in the future somehow we'll figure out what to do with it. i got some ideas of what to do with it, but in the meantime, entombing it is the right solution. Yeah. And they're doing it in Russia, and that's the smart thing. The Japanese have got to look at the fact this thing is way out of control. I, I don't know how long you want me to spend on this, but the reason why they're spilling all that water into the Pacific is because a tremendous amount of water flows underneath the plant. The, radioaction, the radioactivity is still going on. The plant is still – there's still a minor radioactive reaction going on as we speak, below the level where the floor used to be. That water sweeps in under the plant, on its way – To the Pacific Ocean, it's a subterranean aqua field, and they're also spraying all kinds of water on top of the fuel pellets to keep them from flashing. So what's happening is they're not able to suck up all the water. And I want people to go online, Google Fukushima, and look at how many of these white and blue tanks you'll see, multi-thousand-gallon tanks. They keep building them like popcorn all over the landscape, and that's a fraction of the water that they can capture. They can't capture it all. So what they have to do is to separate the Fukushima toxicity from the groundwater underneath it. And they have to put more water on top, making it submerge the entire plant, all the reactors, in one big giant pool. And from that place, you could start to pull the reactor rods apart. That's probably the best idea I've ever heard, and no one's written it up yet, but we've talked about it in the academy. But I'd like to see, is that the best idea? If it isn't, great. What is the best idea? But continuing to do nothing and having no plan when another earthquake is going to take the entire plant into a flash, Uh uh-uh, that ain't the right idea.
0: Well, and and the region keeps getting hit with big earthquakes. I mean, I think there was just another 6.0 last week in the area, and it's it's just a matter of time until something destabilizes and, messes up their basically their temporary stopgap. They have their finger in the in the dike and it's about to burst again at some point. Um, well, that's it is scary it's stuff. every day
1: it's coming through. No, it's every day it's coming through already
0: with the water. Yeah, that's and, the and, whole and point. The water the comes every day. There's water coming through the dike. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The,
1: the flash is the equipment of the dike collapsing and, and all of Holland being inundated except Holland here is the world.
0: Right, right. Uh, okay, well. I want to move on to uh, the news and politics section of the show specifically to quickly talk about Russia and then move into the domestic economic outlook. Um, what do you see happening in Russia and does it align with what we've been talking about in past shows about the situation with Putin and Ukraine?
1: Oh boy. I, yeah. I mean, first of all, um, the good news for people who are following this closely. I mean the bad news of course is coming close, close to civil war and may erupt as such. The, the, the good news for, future stability of world society is that putin is not an idiot he's a bully but not an idiot he's a he's a cold-blooded czar but he's not an idiot and putin despite all his protestations to the contrary has watched as the ruble has fallen 20 percent he's watched as i would say probably 80 percent of his incoming capital has fled he's watched as the economy's gone from a projection this year of two percent positive gdp growth to probably negative one percent and it could get worse And Putin, more than anybody else, knows that his popularity for the moment in Russia, because he's been a bully, because he picked on a country that was completely unprepared to defend itself, he's got temporary popularity. But what causes revolts in Russia is hungry peasants. Putin is playing against two huge forces, which he cannot affect. Number one, he's playing against the fact that the world is going to increasingly get off fossil fuels if for no other reason than the Americans are finally getting the picture. And when America gets the picture fully and starts to unleash the technology that we're talking about here at the Academy to reverse climate change, it will eliminate people wanting fossil fuel, and the price of fossil fuel will start to plummet. And below $100 a barrel, Russia cannot stand. Um, It doesn't have enough money to pay its bills. So that's one long-term trend Putin can't stop. In the short-term trend that Putin's having trouble with, he didn't realize, because he's not an economist, and he fired all his good economists who were yes-men, Putin doesn't realize that he can't withstand sanctions. He thought somehow he was immune because he had oil. But right. if you have oil and you can't trade in dollars, you're still not going to be okay. And what the business community even though they would love to do business with them if if the government would let them. By the way, I don't know if people noticed, but starting on Tuesday, stories came out in the New York Times and elsewhere, that the government of the United States, quite correctly, has instructed American corporate leaders that to rethink twice attending Putin's summit uh, in May. Putin was putting together this giant summit May 22nd to May 24th, which was his way to compete with Davos, the World Economic Forum. And what's happening is all the top executives that he was bringing in, certainly from the U.S., are all canceling. Because the White House is correctly pointing out, you can't participate with this thug. You're only going to encourage him further. So it's already happening that he's watching his economy unravel. And the, the Russian economy wasn't that strong to begin with. It's only been in recovery for about 12 years. So the Russian economy is in serious jeopardy. Putin now knows it. I, I would predict that he will start to find ways to get out of the trap of supporting this uprising in the Ukraine, starting by pull, slowly pulling out all those guys in Russian uniforms that are there without insignia. We, you know, the guys in the camouflage with the, who look like special forces guys? Right. That speak only Russian. Those guys have to go. So first he's got to pull his his forces back from the border. Second, he's got to slowly start pulling those people out, but doing it in a way that doesn't alienate the local population. And then he's going to hope that there's a there's a, a civil war, and that the Russian side of the civil war will be strong enough to retake Eastern Ukraine. That's best he can hope for. He cannot intervene. That's that's already been decided, and even he knows that now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, good news, bad news. Yeah, and then. So it sounds like he's getting the picture, but that situation could easily go sideways given his track record. Um, but what do you see in terms of the, the domestic effects here, and then more broadly, what is the domestic outlook for, for the U.S. economy?
1: And by the way, I just, just take exception to one thing you said. No, I don't think he's going to turn around on this, and I'll tell you why, uh, Matt. I, I think he sees the handwriting on the wall now. He doesn't want to admit it. But he now sees that he is literally at um, – um, He cannot fight the U.S. and the combined uh, economic pain that U.S. and Europe can inflict. And he knows that what he's already seen is just the beginning, and with what he's seen, he's watching his economy drop from a plus 2% to a minus 1%. So he's already seeing huge effects, and he can't afford to see many more, particularly with the price of oil not having gone up in at least six months now. So having said that, Um, let's get to the domestic situation here in the U.S. Well, the domestic situation looks pretty good on one level. Um, For those people who didn't notice, the recent job report had 288,000 people in it. That's great. By the way, there was a restatement of the prior two months, which added another 34,000. So we've eliminated all the jobs lost in the Great Recession. We're back now positive, including the ones that were lost to government that were not rehired, meaning the private sector, which quite some time ago, frankly, had rehired everybody it fired, it has now been able to absorb enough new jobs to absorb the public sector people who were laid off in the Great Recession. So total unemployment today is higher than it was at any time since 2007. This is an enormous statement. It's huge. And it's great. Now, a couple things are important. I want people to start watching carefully this comment that's often made, well, the reason the unemployment rate, which has dropped again, is down to the mid-sixth percentile from where it was 7.5% just four months ago. They say, well, it's because so many people are leaving the workforce. And because they're leaving the workforce, it doesn't really count. They're not really jobs. That's not true. There is a fair criticism about the value of the jobs. But I'm 67 years old, Matt. I'm entitled to retire if I want. I haven't left the workforce yet. But when I do, I would expect them to realize I left it because of my gray hair, not because I thought the economy wasn't recovering. Right. And when you look at the baby boom impact, the age wave, the aging of America, when you look at that, it's pretty clear to me the vast majority of people, quote, leaving the workforce is a number being affected by age-related choices of, of retirement. So if I, if my only choice, Matt, was to work for a minimum wage of 7 dollars 5 an hour, or retire at 67, there's no question, I'd retire. Why would you work for 7 dollars 5 an hour if you can retire? Even if I couldn't retire on much money. Because 7 dollars 5 an hour, by the time you take it home and pay your taxes, doesn't amount to a hill of beans. So the first thing we've got to do is we've got to increase the minimum wage. It should be at least $10.50. That's what it would be if we adjusted it for inflation since the 70s, which we haven't. Or as Elizabeth Warren said, it's time to give America a raise. So that's a a legitimate complaint is that people going back to work in these numbers are getting paid too little. That's a legitimate complaint. They're being hired for low-paying jobs. That's a legitimate complaint. Two solutions. One, first and best solution, raise the minimum wage, and then the low-paying jobs start to boost people back into a spending spree. And by the way, their consumption will drive this economy by at least 2% of the gdp so what you're seeing going to see at two percent gdp growth this year if we're lucky you could see three and a half at least well that's wonderful because now three and a half four percent you're talking about post-world war ii highs okay you're talking about really significant growth for america all by raising the minimum wage i might add number two and this is equally critical we need to unleash the newest industries that are c- capable of creating high paid jobs those industries are all in the green energy sector so when you look at the fact that the jobs we create in converting off of fossil fuels and nuclear, those jobs by tapping wind, solar, geothermal, conceivably ocean thermal, when we tap those, we're using American labor, this will be, in most cases, American equipment, so American manufacturing, a solar installer putting solar cells on your roof, which is a multibillion dollar industry in America now, those people don't make minimum wage, in some markets, they make fifteen, twenty dollars an hour to start. Yeah. In addition, I want to point out, in Colorado, for the last four weeks, the contractors, the home building contractors in Colorado, have been advertising and can't get enough construction workers. Those aren't ten dollar an hour jobs; those are twenty five dollar an hour jobs. And I want to I want to keep going. So this, we can create quality jobs here, but it takes being smart to come in out of the sun and say, okay. Let's get in the shade here. Let's think coolly and calmly. How do we do this? Oh, we create green sector jobs. They stay in America. As you know, I'm extremely proud of the fact that uh, the men's warehouse, where I continue to serve as a director and have since before it went public 23 years ago, the men's warehouse acquired the Joseph Abboud brand. Joseph is our head designer now. And we did it in part because Joseph has a factory in America. We're making clothes in America suits in America by Joseph Abboud. Yeah. I mean, I'm just so thrilled about that, that we brought manufacturing back to America. And we can do that industry by industry, but it takes intelligence and it takes skill. And we have to be willing to get there. So people have to wake up and become active. Senator Kerry, uh, Former Senator Kerry, now Secretary of State Kerry, said a very compelling thing on uh, CBS uh, two nights ago. He said, if America wants to see a different outcome, whether it's a better economy, whether it's addressing climate change, whether it's addressing the quality of jobs, rebuilding, recreating the middle class, quality education for our children, any and all of these things are totally possible today. We don't like the technology. We don't lack the financial ability. What we lack is the willingness to tell our political leaders that's what they've got to give us. Enough with this bickering about nonsense. Let's get to what we care about, jobs, education, the safety of our children.
0: I think it's a pretty powerful message, and, you know, the, the, it's interesting how, how much of the American population understands that message at the core, and I think that's one of the reasons the Democrats, who are in some political trouble given the uh, current state of affairs in, in Washington, are really embracing a lot of what you just talked about as their midterm strategy. Um, you know, the green jobs idea was a powerful one at the beginning of the Obama administration, uh, but it, they've backed off of it in, in part, and they're doing it much more quietly at least. Um, I think that that's something that you could see getting some support after the midterms, no matter who wins, essentially creating uh, infrastructure jobs because the Republicans are going to have to run in 2016 and they can't continue to just oppose all job uh, packages if they want to have a chance. I think they're waking up to that also. Uh, but again, we'll yeah, see. It's,
1: I think, Look, look the, the reason why Benghazi is back on the front page is because they realize that they can't, they can't do any more with Obamacare. It's a huge success. And, and so after trying to stop Obamacare for two and a half years, taking 49 votes, all this silliness, now they're going to go do Benghazi again?
0: Right. Where there's
1: been 13 congressional uh, inquiries. There's been mi- 25 million pages written on it, apparently, some, some crazy number. 25,000, right. I guess, pages. Uh, it's it, some insane number, well and, and they're going to have another hearing on it because they see quote a smoking gun close quote, which is nothing new at all, which is the same exact position that the Democrats have always taken. And the only reason that's happening is because the Republicans are flailing around looking for an issue to try and stop um, the Democrats. They're not; they don't care. They're not caring about the country. By the way, I think the, the Democrats, as you know, I've been very, very harsh with them. I think the Democrats have done a terrible job of standing up for things that common people need because they've been afraid yeah. of, their electri- of, of, of losing their job. Well, you know, we sent them to Congress because they're supposed to do the right thing come hell or high water. And if they don't, they should lose their job. I also want to point out that the Tea Party candidate that tried to knock off um, the Republican candidate who's going to uh, uh, compete against Kay Hagan in – she's running for Senate in North Carolina – he beat a Tea Party challenger. Which was pretty yeah. interesting. The, the traditional Republicans are coming back, and I'm welcoming them. I want to see traditional Republicans. I think traditional Republicans have a tremendous amount to offer to the political debate and to to, to, to balancing the country's long-term needs. The Tea Party craziness, this uh, this Isa thing, Daryl Isa using his perpetual witch hunts to advance himself in Congress, uh, uh, the the stuff that Marco Rubio does to sheer for his own career the stuff that uh, Ted Cruz does sheerly for his own career, all, to me, reek of self-interest over the national interest, and they should be laughed out of office. As much as I'm not a Rand Paul fan, and I'm not for the most part, I really respect that he's trying to tell the truth now about what libertarians really think. And on many issues, as you know, Matt, I'm a libertarian. Now, am I down the the middle, completely libertarian? No. Am I completely Democrat? No. Am I completely Republican? No. I'd like to think I'm all of them. I'm an independent. I want to take the best from each. Now, the Tea Party has nothing good to offer that I can see on any level, but but I do believe there is a really good conversation that could happen if we had three or four vibrant political parties in this country vying for the national vote, and if we had a Congress that was made up of three or four co- uh, parties. I, I think it's long past time that we have, we should not just have Democrats and Republicans in the U.S. Congress. It's screwing up the works. We should have libertarians. So I would like to see a Liberal Democratic Party, centrist Democratic Party, a centrist Republican Party, and a conservative Republican Party. Tea parties to the right of the conservative Republican. That's no sense at all. All of those those four voices need to be at the table talking about how to find common solutions. And I believe if there were four voices at the table, we'd get there. As you know, the Democrats and the Republicans are equally guilty in having a shared oligopoly so they keep everybody else out. And that's the problem. They're more interested in their own political power, Democrats and Republicans, than they are yeah. in what's good for the country. It is – we no longer have time or the, the ability to, to wait for them to get the message. Uh, you remember that old saying, this is not time for sunshine patriots? Okay? Yep. This is a time for – and they're referring to Valley Forge – what we need are not sunshine patriots, but patriots who can go through the cold winter of Valley Forge and come out the other side with Washington. That's what we need. And it will only happen if the people on the show do two things. One, tell every friend you've got to start listening to this show. Start discussing the things we're talking about. If you agree with them, great, send us a note. If you disagree with them, great, send us a note. We'll respond. But talk to each other. It is time for citizen action. That's what Kerry said. He's right. I want to make one last point. It's not in our notes, but you know, I was reflecting, the smallest increase in the last 30 years in health care costs in America happened this year, and I believe it's because of Obamacare. So that huge drain on our economy is peaking out. The price of gas, which in your adulthood Matt, went from 20 dollars a gallon to 105 dollars a gallon I mean a barrel, 28 dollars a barrel <coughs> in your lifetime, with <coughs> that eye, is peaking out. That was a huge drain on the economy. So if we look at the cost of climate change, the, the $100 billion it costs this year, and, and people who listen to the show know I've been saying this for several years now, in the short run, that cost is actually a plus because it forces us at the government level to spend money to fix things. However, five, ten years out, it'll cripple us because we won't be able to keep up with the cost because the damage will be so great. So I really want to urge people, it's time to get involved, folks. I was in favor of a single-payer system. I still think it was the best answer. However, what we got was the first reform of health care in this country in the history of the nation. We're still way behind every other industrial country in the world in education. We're still way behind every industrial country in the world in health care. But we did something. It's going to help. Let's build on it. Let's keep moving, and let's take back our government. Let's take control of our government and tell the government what we want it to do. Secure our future.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Ronaldo, you mentioned a minute ago that you want to have people write in when they have comments or questions or responses. I want to give them that email address. That's info, I-N-F-O, at worldbusiness.org. Again, that's info at worldbusiness.org. Write us there to give us your feedback and to ask questions and to uh, give us, you know, essentially your thoughts on all the the topics we cover here. We're happy to respond and, and talk more about it. Um, Ronaldo, I want to I shift now to something that is uh, a, a local action. Uh, it's political, but it really cuts through a lot of political ideologies. Like you were saying, this is a solution that I think is uh, both libertarian, liberal, and conservative by the kind of traditional definitions of all those concepts. Uh, so if you, don't, if you didn't think it was possible, there is a solution right now that both increases the uh, com- competition, builds markets, and saves uh, business money and also encourages the development of renewable energy. Um, oh, you're going
1: gonna, gonna to talk, talk about community choice aggregation here, right?
0: Exactly, yeah. Uh, th- th- the yeah, yeah, no, th- well,
1: yeah, no, explain it. I think you should start with an explanation because I don't think people are going to keep up with it. It does all the things you just said, but tell folks what it is because they may not know. Probably don't.
0: Yes, I will. So, Community choice aggregation is something of a complex name for a pretty simple idea. Essentially, right now, uh, the utility companies are the ones that dictate where you get your power from. So you turn your light switch on, and that, those electrons come from various sources, usually dirty energy. And that is all, all those decisions are made by your local utility. So in Southern California, it would be Southern California Edison. Up here in Northern California, where I am, it would be PG&E and across the country, uh, similar situations, and across the world, frankly. But here in the US, we have six states that have adopted something called community choice aggregation, which sets up a not-for-profit government entity that does the power purchasing for you. So essentially, it takes the power away from the utility companies to decide where your power that powers your home comes from. this is pretty essential, and, and it's a little bit complex to explain, but essentially instead of having utility companies uh, create contracts with Exxon or uh, various nuclear power companies, they can simply uh, – the, the people in a municipality can vote to set up their own agreements uh, as a result. Let me give a
1: – Matt, let me give a, a, yeah, bat, me give a people example. Just so, 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 so folks, just so you don't get scared by this. You, you probably live in a town with a sewer district or a municipal water district or a, a refuge collection district, and often those are built into your tax base. In other words, you don't realize it, but the, the sewer district is a special governmental entity which is in charge of taking care of human waste and, 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 and processing it. What Matt's talking about is doing the same exact thing we've done for 100 years in this country except design these agencies called Community Choice Aggregation, or CCAs, to be the acquirer of actual electricity from whatever source it can get it, and CCAs tend to get it from renewable sources. As an example, uh, tell them about San Rafael Airport, what they did with one megawatt up there, Matt.
0: Yeah, so it's important that we talk about that because it, when you form a CCA, your local, your local government essentially has control over those power purchase agreements. Uh, as a result, you have a vote in where your power comes from. Uh, additionally, those those power contracts can be used locally to create distributed power and one example is in san rafael there's a there's a pretty small airport there but they had a lot of roofs and tons of hangar space that was essentially sitting out there in the sun uh, because marin formed a community choice aggregation entity they were able to make a contract with that airport to buy all of the solar power they could produce and that contract allowed that airport to put up one megawatt of solar power, uh, knowing that they would have a power purchaser. And essentially the the local CCA favored that power source because it was local and green. And it's one of the mainstays of their uh, developing local power uh, um, facilities. And and that's one of the great things about CCA is you essentially create laboratories for local power experiments and uh, innovation.
1: Yeah, and and, and just to give you an example, folks, I want you, every time you look at a municipal parking lot in your town, we have Santa Barbara, we have tons of them, and they never have uh, roofs in the top layer because there's no reason to put it there. Well, if you put a roof and you put photovoltaic cells on the top of that roof, now you're like the San Rafael Airport, and every garage could be creating electricity that we could buy here in Santa Barbara from ourselves, much cheaper than we can buy from Edison, and we could use it in Santa Barbara. That's called distributed creation, distributed use. It's far cheaper. And guess what, folks? You save the 40% of all the electrons you lose when you take power down the grid from a distant source because that line loss of 40% is what you're absorbing. Can you imagine if we all started creating energy in our own backyards, we're using CCAs, we would save 40% overnight of the energy we're using. That's an enormous number. And it can be done all with renewables. I mean, I think that's, that's a big punchline.
0: I mean, that's the great news is that essentially these are the mechanisms for making renewable energy uh, a reality if the pol- the politicians at the at the national and state level won't act. So this is a, a really powerful uh, example of in- independent uh, thinking, where communities are wrestling control of their power purchasing away from these massive monopolies that are supposed to be regulated, but get away with a lot of uh, horrible things as we've been talking about. Um, and actually taking taking that control and doing things like in Marin, having a, a 50% green energy option or a 100% green energy option. Those are your two options if you're a part of the Marin Clean Energy CCA. Uh, the great news about that is that, you know, they, they've been beating PG&E's prices, even though they're doing 50% renewable or 100% renewable um, that's, that's a testament to how much waste and corruption is built into the utility structure. PG&E provides less than 20% renewable energy, but uh, Marin says they saved their customers $5.9 million already in 2014, which is pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I just
1: just 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 to take because um, it's a national show, and I, I want you to come back to California because I know there's a threat here at, uh, on on the um, the Utilities and Commerce Committee. But just go through a couple of states that I know Illinois has had success with it. I know New York yeah. has been playing with it. Hey, just tell people so, a few other things in other states.
0: Yeah, there's there's six states that currently have CCA laws, and three more that are exploring it very uh, aggressively. In Illinois, is a great example because right now. It, Within 18 months, the state added 3 million new customers to CCA, so that 80% of all residential customers in Illinois are a part of a CCA. That means that 80% of the residents there are democratically controlling where their power comes from. Um, right now, you know, the the biggest shift in Illinois was when Chicago formed a CCA at the end of 2012, and already. So that was the end of 2012. So we have 2013 and the beginning of 2014, a year and a half, they shifted to get 0% of their power from coal or nuclear power, 0% for the entire city of Chicago. They they aren't 100% green, but they're off of coal and they're off of nuclear already. Um, Cincinnati's another big city that's moving towards renewable because they have a CCA. Ohio has set up a, the CCA program in their state. Ohio is very mixed in terms of their environmental uh, Advocacy. Some people in that state are very for environmental protection, and some are more interested in uh, destroying the planet. And they've which state? What? Which uh, state? Ohio. Ohio.
1: Yeah, but they but aren't they working towards the renewable goal? I thought they
0: were. So some, in the cities, they are. Like Ohio is very split. It's you know a, a bunch of big cities that are extremely liberal, and a bunch of in between areas that are extremely red or Republican or conservative. Uh, right now, Cincinnati is working towards 100% renewable. Um, well, that's and, that's a red
1: that's a red part of the state. That's red. That's well, very conservative.
0: Yeah. So, so the the big thing though is that the the it doesn't it, the CCA model works no matter your politics because these CCAs in Ohio are still beating the cost of the utility companies, which is one of the main drivers there. So, in a way, it does open people up to uh, price competition, even if it's not about renewable energy, which. I think is positive regardless uh, because we're looking for efficiency in the system. Um, you know, one of the big pieces here is that uh, even in Massachusetts where the law isn't implemented correctly, frankly, they make you buy your power from one source. So you get tied into another monopoly situation. Even still the CCA is beating prices 65% of the time in, uh, in parts of in Cape Cod, so it's working in some places and again this is early days for this this system, um, but it has the attention of New Jersey Rhode Island, and they they both have passed CCA laws and are beginning to implement them uh, New York, Utah, and Maine are all exploring the CCA concept and that's a real spread if you look at the state the, the makeups of those states this is a law that appeals to every state no no matter what the politics are because they see it as a way of Wrestling control back uh, over power purchasing. It's very interesting. Well,
1: I got two questions, Matt, because I know we're running short of time. I just here's for first question: Um if people write us about this, can we send them? Because we just rattle you rattled off so many facts, and and they're all relevant. So, would would we be able to send people this information if they wrote in and asked for it?
0: Yeah, that's easy. No On problem. CCDAs.
1: Okay, good. So folks, ask for it, and we'll give it to you in writing, and then you can go through it slowly, because what Matt just dumped was an extraordinary opportunity. could imagine the state of Illinois is completely off coal, all fossil fuels, and nuclear. The entire state of Illinois, 100% off. That's that's what we all ought to be going for, folks. Cincinnati, one of the most conservative cities in America, going for a 100% renewable target. Now, but come back to where you started, California. And talk about Mr. Stephen Bradford, will you? What's he doing? Yeah,
0: so California's CCA law has been attacked by the utilities. They even got a ballot initiative uh, on the ballot in, I believe it was 2010, to try to get rid of this law. Maybe it was 2012. Uh, Regardless, they spent $44 million trying to kill this because it's such a threat to their system. But it didn't work. People rejected it, even though there was a huge lobbying effort. Um, However... There's a man named Stephen Bradford who worked as the public affairs, as a public affairs executive for Southern California Edison, probably the most powerful utility here in California. He got elected to the 62nd District uh, in the Assembly, and he's the chair of the Utilities and Commerce Committee. Right now, he's pushing a bill to essentially switch CCA off by creating a, the private monopoly companies as the default provider, uh, even in CCA communities. It's a a poison pill. It's moving through the legislature. It just passed his committee. And it would essentially make it impossible to form new CCAs. So it's a real threat. Uh, There's there's talk that the governor would veto it. But if you care about CCA and if you think this is a good concept, I would look into this and uh, make your voice heard. Because it's it's an extraordinary moment right now as all these new CCAs are growing in California and as we know, as goes California, so goes the, the country and eventually the world. Uh, so we really need to protect this program, if possible, from assaults from insiders like uh, Bradford. And,
1: and just to make this, uh, and uh, just to put a cap on this, folks, remember I said a, a little bit ago, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, I'm, uh, I'm not a Libertarian, I'm a little bit of everything. And I've got to tell you, folks, it's the Democrats in California that are doing this. The Democrats in the state of California are trying to kill CCAs. That's how pervasive and corrupting influence of money is in every state. When you've got a liberal Democratic state like California killing CCAs because it benefits utilities and doing so at the request of the former public relations officer for Edison, that to me tells you you've got a huge problem. So, folks, yeah, make yeah. your voices heard. Tell, talk to the, send a letter to the Utilities and Commerce Committee. We've got 100 people coming to a meeting here tomorrow night, I believe. Is it tomorrow night, uh, Matt? Next week. Next week. Next week. Next Thursday, we've got a, over 100 people. We'll be writing letters to these people. We'll be saying, what are you, what are you thinking to this committee and to the legislature generally? We'll be contacting our Assemblyman, Doss Williams. We'll be contacting our Senator, um, Hannibal Jackson, and we'll say, what on earth are you thinking? Kill this silly bill. Why are you turning the clock back to fossil fuel, back into nuclear, back into control by the utilities? We want to be free. Let my people go. That's <laughs> exactly. what we want. Let us be free. So I, just, I don't want to be enslaved by the chains of commerce to a future that's so destructive it's not safe for my grandchildren to grow up in it. And if you <laughs> feel that way, folks, please. Right. I'm glad that so many of you are joining the show. Our our list of listeners grows every week, and I'm so grateful for that. Please keep telling your friends. Please get the word out there. This is the beginning of the revolution. We have to talk to each other, and we have to be willing to pick pick targets in common, and then we have to be active citizens. And in that context, I want to supply you with a little present. I've been developing with the oldest and most respected firm in the social responsible investing community, for 27 years now it's been around, I've been working with them for the last year, trying to design a way to take money that small investors have, as little as $10,000, and put it into things that will grow over time that don't involve investing in nuclear, don't involve investing in coal, don't involve investing in any fossil fuels, but do involve safe investments. In fact, the World Business Academy's money is with these people, first affirmative, my personal money is now with them in large quantities that I've got saved up for my retirement. So I want you to know I'm putting my money where my mouth is, and we've now created a program, I think, where we're going to be able to service people with income with savings as small as $10,000. And what I'd like you to do is this. I want you to write us and say you are interested in learning more, because if enough of you do, we will create a mutual fund that you'll be able to buy into and you'll be able to make investments that are coordinated with what I talk about on the show. Uh, and we'll going to talk about the lightning round in a minute. And when we do, all the things I talk about in the lightning round is what goes in to making the decision as to what to buy or not buy in this fund. So if you like what you've been hearing on the show all these years, this is your chance to make money off of what we're saying. In other words, not only can you be conscious and help save the planet, but you can get rich doing it. What a concept. What a concept! And even if you've yep. only got a ten thousand dollars stake, you can't get rich on ten thousand, but you can grow the ten to twenty. So let's go do something for each other. We're we have been setting it up. It's taken a tremendous amount of my time. I'm working with George Gay, the chairman of First Affirmative, and Steve Sheath, the, vice, the president of First Affirmative. And I think we've got something here that people are going to want. So if you're interested, let us know, and we'll continue to put effort into it. If you're not, then we won't bother. So. Come on, this is the ball's now in your court. Would you like to make money safely in, in, in aligning your investment, your IRAs, your your four hundred one k's, your personal savings? Do you want to align that with the things we talk about on the show and make money like I do from it because I make a lot of money from it. Thank you, God. I'm really pleased, and I'm willing to share that with you. So, and I, again, Ronaldo Burdaco never makes a penny on any of this, ever, ever, ever. So, I uh, want you to think about that and uh, give us uh, drop us a line if you're intrigued. We'd like to talk to you about it. Okay lightning round. Shall we go on, Matt?
0: Yeah, Ronaldo, I would like to talk in the lightning round uh, essentially about different asset classes that you see as important to bring up to our listeners. Uh, So I want to cover inflation and bonds, and then you wanted to talk about food issues.
1: Okay, here we go. Fast on inflation, because I know we're running out of time. Folks, um, the inflation rate is starting to pick up. You've probably noticed, you've begun noticing it already in the grocery store gonna. There's always a somewhat of an inflationary impact at the pump because even in dropping fuel sales, which as a whole, the U.S. is burning far less gasoline per capita than it has in the last 50 years, by the way, even though we dropped our consumption because we're buying smarter, more affordable cars and we'll continue to do so, cars with better gas mileage. The the oil companies, because of their power, their market power and their political power, have been able to keep prices very high. That won't last forever, but it is going to be something you're going to continue to deal with this year, 2014. When you combine the high price of fuel together with the extremely high rising prices of of food, example, beef is up 19% because of the drought. When beef goes up, it brings up the price of chicken and pork. um, the the number of people around the planet particularly in China that now want more protein in their diet is pushing up beef, poultry and chicken sales overseas and those sales are consuming more soybeans and um, more grain crops so you have a situation where the drought is reducing the planet's ability to keep growing more and more food Kansas for example will do half if they're lucky of last year's winter wheat crop if they're lucky they'll get to half Um, and um, Canada's doing really well with a bumper crop, it looks like, to me, wheat. But but, uh, Brazil, the largest exporter of soybeans, has been unable to grow as many because of the drought. So with increased drought pressures on food supplies and increased numbers of people wanting higher protein quantity in their diet, which requires more more food supplies, not less, because a pound of rice to live off of is easier to grow so to speak than a pound of beef so what you need to know folks is that this inflationary push is going to continue and whereas i was looking at a one percent inflation rate for the back half of 2014 as a hope for target i no longer see that as as possible i'm now seeing a two two and a half percent in the second half of this year which starts in june and i believe that the trend will be clearly up in the latter half of this year What does that mean for investments? Well, what it means is that interest rates are going to go back up. They're not as high as they were, but they're going to go back up. It's already started in the long-term bonds. Because of that, I've been against bonds. I've told all of you, please don't buy bonds. In the fund I'm doing with First Affirmative, I've eliminated virtually all the bonds. I think it's less than 5% of the whole portfolio because the value of the bond will now drop as interest rates go up. So no matter what you're paying in interest, and it's not that much to start with, the the actual value of the bond will drop as interest rates rise. So not a time to be buying bonds. There are some exceptions. If people want to know what they are, drop me a line, I'll tell you. But as a general rule, for most people who aren't that sophisticated, stay out of bonds. Number two, I get asked this all the time, what about gold? Gold is becoming intriguing again. We are not at an inflationary level yet where gold is valuable yet. So you, if you check the price of gold, like I do almost every day, uh, you don't yet have a situation where gold is going to be a, an immediate hedge against inflation. But as I said on the show uh, uh, last week, um, it, it, last month, I said gold will start to edge up. Well, it happened. Uh, uh, last month, we were at 1220 roughly, as the price of gold. And today, we're at 1309 So it's already gone up a significant percent. I believe it will continue to go up. Um, for the balance of this year. Not rapidly at first, but eventually it will start to spike. So if you know how to own gold, meaning there are many different ways, and maybe, Matt, under financial literacy someday, we should talk again about how you can own gold as a stock in a gold mining company, as as an ounce of gold you actually own in your safe deposit box, as a mutual fund that you can invest in, etc., called the Shared Depository as well as another way to do it. We can yeah. cover all those ways to own gold, but gold is going to become more valuable. Now let's talk about housing. Um, the housing market has completely replaced all of the housing demand it lost during the Great Recession. The problem is that our rate of new housing construction is still at recession levels, meaning about two and a quarter percent nationally, whereas we're used to seeing about four percent based on the number of family household formations. Why is that happening? Well, it's happening because people can't afford to own a house anymore. Mm. And so what I'd like people to start focusing on, the new buyers aren't there. The first-time buyers can't get into the market. And what you're seeing is increased upward pressure on rents, which is great, meaning if you're a landlord, you're getting more money for your rental property. But if you're a tenant, you're paying more for your rent, and you're caught in the spiral because the tax advantages of owning are still dramatically better than renting. So if you have the ability to buy a piece of real estate to live in, not for an investment, but to live in, your chance to get it at a reasonable price, at reasonable interest rates, that window is closing. So if you're going to do it, you want to do it sooner rather than later. Um, I've also said in the last three shows that I saw continuing improvement in in commercial real estate. Uh, The numbers that came out last week would indicate that was also accurate. Commercial real estate is doing much better. Some states like Hawaii, you you can't even get any; there are virtually no vacancies. Other states, the vacancies are dropping, even as the economy continues to pick up speed. So, still looking at for the balance of the year, at least we're going to end the year at somewhere around a two and a half percent. Uh, GDP growth, and uh, we're probably at or above that now, and I'm seeing it trending higher as we go through the year. So uh, people got a little bit worried that we did a tenth of a percent growth in the first quarter, and they said, gee, oh my goodness, is the recession coming back? It is no. That was an anomaly due to weather, uh, strictly weather-weirding. Climate change hit. And all that snow and all that craziness and all those places, 42 states were affected. And that's what kept hiring down. But as you saw, there was was like a loaded spring. It came back, you know, popped uh, last month. And and we'll continue to see gains in the total number of people employed in the next foreseeable three to six months at least. And we'll see gains in um, the average uh, wage being paid. A little bit will go up not at the minimum wage level but at the wage of negotiated wages because the market's starting to get tighter when when contractors in Denver are sending for people around the country to come work there to do construction it means that there's wage pressures are beginning to build all those together mean more inflation in the second half of the year add to that that the fed will be reducing its easing and now you've got us you've got a formula for certain of increasing inflation as the year wears on uh, that's the best draft I can do given the time we've got
0: Thanks, Ronaldo. Uh, And as a reminder, this show relies on word of mouth to grow. Uh, Please tell your friends about this podcast, send them to our website, and have them sign up for our email list so they can get involved. And if you have questions, please write to us at info at worldbusiness.org. On behalf of the World Business Academy, thank you for listening. We'll be back next month with a new episode of New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society. Thanks, Ronaldo.
1: Thank you, Matt. Thanks to everyone for listening.